Okay, Numbers chapter 34. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you so much. There's so much embedded in these pages that, Lord, were never meant by you to be taken in by us as dead doctrine, as some religious thing that we're obliged to read through in order to check off some religious checklist. No, this is, these are things, Lord, that are meant to be applied. And so I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, for you to speak through these words, speak through me, speak, Lord, into our lives, that we may apply them to our life, and that we may better understand the new covenant, the new covenant in the blood of Christ. And Lord, we thank you for him today, for his life, which he lived, Lord. Being tempted in every way that we have been tempted yet without sin, a life that he lived to credit to our account. We thank you for his death. Lord, you put all our sins on him, on the cross, and he paid the penalty for our sin. And then, Lord, you raised him from the dead. and He ascended into heaven in order to give us new life. We thank you for him. Speak to us today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Numbers chapter 34. For again, Israel is on the plains of Moab, right at the edge of going into Israel. Jericho on the other side would be the first city that they conquer. And Moses uh, is going to give them instruction. And... In chapter 34 here, uh, really interesting, he is going to give them the specific borders of where they are to be once they occupy. Specific borders uh, once uh, they go into the land. And he's also going to give them the names of each tribe who... Uh, leaders of each tribe who are going to be responsible for uh, allocating to the different families in the tribe the land. And so, uh, specific borders. Now, I feel like any discussion of this chapter needs to be read concurrently with chapter 15 of the book of uh, Genesis, where the Lord tells Abraham the land that he is going to, uh, rather his descendants would receive some day. Uh, Genesis chapter 15 verse 18 says this, it says the Lord made a covenant, literally cut a covenant with Abraham saying to your descendants, I have given this day from the river of Egypt to the river, to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites. Now, so what uh, is 
must be taken into account is that in Numbers chapter 34, the boundaries given, uh, one could say they are quite different than the boundaries given in Genesis uh, chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, it it says there that the Lord uh, is going to give Israel the land from the river of Egypt, and most commentators believe that's a reference to the Nile, all the way to the river Euphrates. Now, Israel at the time of David and Solomon arguably um, occupied that area. And so it could, or at least it was under their control. Uh, But what follows in Genesis chapter 15 are the mention of various peoples, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites. And uh, so... Many scholars believe that what is actually meant is that in between the land of uh, the the Nile River and the river Euphrates, there's going to be a land that I'm going to give you that's occupied by these nations. Now, it, it could be that these are the nations that occupied the area of land which Moses is specifying in chapter 34. And so then what is really meant uh, at the end of Genesis chapter 15 is really um, the exact area that uh, Moses is giving, or perhaps there was a future fulfillment after Numbers 34 uh, through uh, in the kingdom of uh, David or Solomon or perhaps in the millennial kingdom. But um, I... uh, feel strongly both ways. And so whatever you feel like uh, um, is the best interpretation, uh, that's the one uh, maybe you can stick with. But um, here in chapter 34, uh, he says to them, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that you shall, that shall fall to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan to its boundaries. And so he is going to be giving very specific boundaries, more or less uh, what today the area, the land area is of modern day Israel. There's going to be some differences there, uh, more on that later. But um, what is fascinating about the nation of Israel is Uh, If you look at their history, even up to today, it's never been an expansionist country. Now, uh, could it be uh, because the the Lord knows what happens when a people begin to prosper? Uh, They, for example, uh, they begin to prosper, and this is really the history of of the world, uh, in the nations of the world and empires of the world, a nation begins to prosper, prosper greatly. And as soon as it's prospering greatly, it turns into a militaristic and expansionist uh, way to, and, and this, is, this is basically the history of the world, except Israel. So uh, Israel was given specific borders. God knew that 
the within these borders, they were going to be able to prosper greatly. Now, some of uh, the area is, uh, such as the south, the Negev is a, a desert area, but uh, the north, Galilee, uh, highly productive in terms of agriculture. Now, you know, virtually all the areas of the country, or uh, maybe not all, but m many parts of the country, formerly arid, are now being cultivated, and it's a top, Israel's a top fruit producer in the entire world. But God knew they were going to be able to get into the land. He knew they were going to prosper there, and he didn't want them becoming an expansionist, militaristic nation. Why? That was, that is a misrepresentation of who God is. And so it's not all about me, myself, and my nation. And so uh, sometimes, and I, I, I know I'm charting into dangerous waters, that patriotism can be uh, a dangerous thing, uh, even an evil thing. Uh, at, at heart, um, it's, in many respects, it's a good and noble thing, but uh, so often it turns uh, to a place that uh, there's nothing good about it at all. M militaristic regimes and aggression and oppressing other people and uh, taking, uh, stripping away from other nations uh, their goods and their services and their people. Uh, so in order to enrich um, a, a militaristic nation. And so uh, here you have it, very specific boundaries and so there would be times where, for example, in the kingdom of David, he would be attacked by the Syrians or the Ammonites, uh, or perhaps uh, in, in, during the time of Egypt, uh, during the time of Israel, of Egypt from time to time attacked. Uh, they would, uh, they would um, defend themselves and then find themselves with other territories beyond these borders. But... Uh, uh, that's something a little different. The uh, boundaries here are more or less what we know uh, to be uh, of Israel today with some differences. And so it says in verse 3, Your southern border shall be from the wilderness of Zen along the border of Edom. Then your southern border shall extend eastward to the end of the Salt Sea. Your border shall turn from the southern side of the ascent of Arabim, Continue to Zen and be on the south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it, then it shall go to Hazar Adar and continue to Asmon. The border shall turn from Asmon to the brook of Egypt and it shall end at the sea. So more or less here a description that defines the southern border today. The Gaza Strip would be included within these. The western border, verse 6, you shall have the great sea for a border. This shall be your western border. And this shall be your northern border. And so it just basically described, very easy to, to define the border in the west. It's the, it's the Mediterranean Sea. Continues with a description of the northern border in verse 7. From the great sea, you shall mark out your borderline to Mount Hor. From Mount Hor you shall mark out your border to the entrance of Hamath. Then the direction of the border shall be towards Zedad. The border shall proceed to Ziphron and it shall be, it shall end at Hazar Enon. This shall be your northern border. So, 
this actually goes a little bit beyond what Israel is today. It would include southern um, Lebanon. Uh, however, it w does include here the Golan Heights. Okay. The eastern border. Verse 10, you shall mark out your eastern border from Hazar Enon to Shaphan. The border shall go down from Shepham to Riblah on the east side of An. The border shall go down and reach to the eastern side of the Sea of Chinnereth, which we know is the Sea of Galilee. The border shall go down along the Jordan and it shall end at the Salt Sea. This shall be your land with its surrounding boundaries. And so uh, here you have the, uh, again, more or less what the, the boundaries are of Israel today, which would include the disputed areas. Uh, it's fascinating to me that it does not include uh, any of the land that uh, Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben asked for. If you remember from the previous chapters, they came to Moses, seeing east of the Jordan was wonderful grazing land, and they said, hey, we kind of like this. Uh, we don't really want to bother going into you, into the land of Canaan. We'll just stay here. Interesting that that land is not included here. Of course, when uh, the Assyrians and others came in and attacked Israel hundreds of years later, those would be the first uh, areas to fall by the sword of the enemy. Uh, nevertheless, God did honor um, their request. I do believe it was a plan B, uh, and uh, different things happened over the years with, uh, with those areas that God used. Uh, but... Um, uh, but uh, here you have it. They are not included in these borders. Uh, if I was anyone in the tribe of Manasseh, Gad, Reuben, I may have been a little nervous um, with this proclamation of Moses. Now, you may ask, why so little land? Why so little land? I mean, this, come on. This is the, the, the creator of heaven and earth. He is the uh, God of the God of the world. I, I don't understand why not give him a whole continent. Uh, why and with that make it be the biggest one, Asia? Why this little piece of land less than the size of New Jersey? Why is that? You know, I I think that um, I think that we underestimate the importance in the Bible of the principle of Gideon. The principle of, of, of Gideon, and you remember the story in the book of Judges. Uh, Israel had been in the land a number of years, but they had turned to foreign gods, and God let them be overrun by the, uh, by the Midianites. The Lord appears to Gideon. And Gideon calls for an army to fight the uh, Midianites. And behold, there's 22,000 people, uh, rather 32,000 people uh, gathered. And the Lord said, no, this is way too many. Uh, we need to reduce the size here, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me. 
Notice how it says, against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. And so the first thing that happened was that Gideon proclaimed to the people, look, who's ever fearful and wants to go back, go back. So 22,000 people returned, only uh, 10,000 remained. Uh, even, and God says that's, that's too big as well. Even though that the Midianites were more than someone could number, hundreds of thousands, uh, 10,000 was uh, too many. Again, uh, the Lord, his, his thinking there is that, nope, if they even defeat them with 10,000, they're going to claim glory for themselves against me. So then there's that uh, famous um, story of the Lord said to Gideon, the people are too many, bring them down to the water and I will test them uh, for you there. Uh, and so uh, they went down to the water and, and uh, the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, um, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink, uh, set them apart. And so uh, the numbers uh, of those who lapped, like uh, putting their hand to their mouth, was just 300 men. And so the 9,700 left, and there's just 300 men. And the Lord says in uh, Judges chapter 7, verse 7, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. And so uh, I don't think we can talk really about this enough. There's a plague, a disease in with the body of Christ in the United States of America. And that is that through political means and through numbers, through large numbers, through majority votes, the Lord is going to win his battle. Not so. Um, as a result, there's just a craziness in so many quarters to try to get as big as possible. And so, you know, in many respects, the, the, the evangelical church in the United States of America is 100,000 miles wide, but an inch deep. Um, now, what the Lord wants is a few faithful men and women and ho oh, how I personally uh, struggle with this and need to remember this every single day, that God wants to be glorified. If, um, if he is not the one uh, to, to win the battle, if, if the battle is not won in such a way that it is abundantly clear that the Lord won it, well, then I'm going to claim glory for myself against God. And I may not say, oh, no, God had nothing to do with this. You know, I'll give him lip service. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. But I have a tendency to uh, claim glory for myself rather than uh, for the Lord. And so it says that when I do that, I do, I claim glory for myself against him. Oh, my. Uh, and so the borders here given, the Lord was just going to use this, this small little area to show the whole world about 
himself. Of course, he was going to bring the Messiah through this, uh, through the uh, within these borders as well. But uh, isn't it interesting how today all the eyes of the world are on Israel? Of course, it's also true that the uh, little piece of land that God chose for his people happens to be right in the crossroots of three major continents. And so when the uh, Jesus came and was resurrected and ascended into heaven, the, uh, the news about him could spread easily into uh, three continents because of all the already existing trade routes and this type of thing. So uh, God, the principle of Gideon, God wants to be glorified and he so often is using what is small in the eyes of the world to glorify himself. I am reading a book right now about D.L. Moody. I don't think he ever uh, graduated from high school. And yet this man um, who basically tortured the English language in this book, it, it, it's quoting some of his letters. And uh, any English teacher, uh, elementary English teacher, would be aghast uh, at what they see. Yet the Lord used him so mightily uh, to bring hundreds of thousands to Christ. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? Verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 1. So that no flesh should glory in his presence. And so you may say, hey, Steve, are we ever going to get to Numbers chapter uh, 34? Uh, back to Numbers chapter 34. We certainly will. <laughs> we will continue at this time. But remember the principles of Gideon. So he gives the uh, the uh, Israelites these set boundaries, which more or less we see today. Verse 13, then Moses commanded the children of Israel saying, this is the land which you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine and, the, and to the half tribe. Uh, for the tribe of the children of Reuben, according to the house of their fathers, and the tribe of the children of Gad, according to the house of their fathers, have received their inheritance, and the half-tribe of Manasseh has received its inheritance. The two tribes and a half shall receive their inheritance on this side of the Jordan, across from Jericho, eastward towards the sunrise. And so, um, doesn't really even specify exactly what that was uh, that the two and a half tribes got. And, and so, the, every indication that, as we've already read, that um, God... This was definitely a plan B for the two and a half tribes to uh, stay behind. And so, verse 16, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land among you as an inheritance, Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. And you shall take one leader of every tribe to divide the land for the inheritance. These are the names of the men from the tribe of Judah, Caleb the son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of the children of Simeon, Shemuel, the son of 
Amahud, from the tribe of Benjamin, Eldad, the son of Chislon, a leader from the tribe of the children of Dan, Buki, the son of Jogli, from the sons of Joseph, a leader from the tribe of the children of Manasseh, Haniel, the son of Ephod, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Ephraim, Kemuel, the son of Shipha. A leader from the tribe of the children of Zebulun, Elizaphan, the son of Parnash. A leader from the tribe of the children of Isaacar, Paltiel, the son of Azon. A leader from the tribe of the children of Asher, Ahahud, the son of Shalomi. And a leader from the tribe of the children of Nathali, Pedahel, the son of Amahud. These are the ones the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance among the children of Israel in the land of of Canaan. You know, what uh, strikes me uh, about uh, these verses that we just read is that he is, God is putting so much power in the hands of one man. So one man is going to take a very large area of land and he is going to be responsible for giving the different families of uh, the land uh, of his tribe, um, their, uh, what is their inheritance, an enormous amount of power. And usually, um, in the words of Alexander uh, Solzhenitsyn, absolute power corrupts absolutely. There is one exception, and that is if there are men and women of God who uh, really fear the Lord and know that if they're uh, doling out the best stuff to their families and friends, there is a God who judges. I spend a lot of my time in uh, the developing countries, uh, not only what I would call third world countries, but fourth world countries. And uh, it is really, really uh, tragic to see what goes on in these countries. It's really corruption that is preventing them from coming out of the place that they're in. Because uh, money is given to the countries in very large, uh, in very large quantities from other countries and NGOs, which mean very well, but they are in the hands of men and women who uh, do not allocate them in a, in a way that that is fair, and there's incredible corruption. Now, any student of history um, will tell you that the United States was settled by Puritans, and while they may have had their faults, and they certainly did, we all do, um, these men and women feared God. As a result, the different uh, places in government, uh, the, the judiciary, the executive branch, the executive branch, of course, which is responsible for allocating funds, much like we see in Numbers chapter 34, the, uh, uh, police force, uh, th th this this type of thing. Um, this country, when it began, uh, these institutions became were were trusted by the people. Uh, they, of course, 
America certainly has its blemishes uh, in its past, some, some of them extremely serious, for example, uh, slavery. But the institutions of government in this country, because they were trusted, uh, people with money were willing to invest in the country. And as a result, there was tremendous prosperity. And so these, these men who... Uh, these men who God knew, actually all these names here, who we just named, they were named by God. These were God-fearing men who uh, were able to allocate this, um, the, this the, the land to the different families. And never do, never do we hear a complaint. Email me if you find something wrong, but never do we hear a complaint that there was an un, some family that was like, hey, wait a second. Why did you give me this lousy piece of land? You know, you gave your family that great piece. You never see that. And so that's because these names here are actually, <clears throat> Moses didn't come up to them, come up with these names. God came up with these names. And, and if you're, and as you're listening to this message, let me tell you, God knows your thoughts. God knows your thoughts. And so when names come up for a promotion, when names come up uh, for some kind of responsibility, he knows your name and he knows your thoughts. So how important it is for us to have a fear of God. So chapter 35 of Numbers is going to be the, uh, God's going to deal with uh, the Levites and what to do with them as they do not get a specific inheritance. Uh, they, they, they were, if, if you read chapter, uh, the previous chapters, they don't get a specific inheritance. Actually, their inheritance is going to come all from the other tribes because remember what it says. It says to the Levites previously, God says, I am your inheritance. This is a beautiful picture of the man or woman in Christ. We are called sojourners. We are modern-day Levites. We do not have permanent boundaries like the 11 other tribes. We are like Levites, temporary residents, pilgrims, sojourners. And the Lord, verse 1, of chapter Numbers chapter 35, spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Command the children of Israel that, that they give the Levites cities to dwell in from the inheritance of their possession. And you shall also give the Levites common land around the cities. They shall have the cities to dwell in. And their common land shall be for their cattle, for their herds, and uh, for all their animals, the common land of the cities which you will give the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. And you shall measure outside the city of the east side two thousand cubits, on the south side two thousand cubits, on the west side two thousand cubits, on the north side two thousand cubits. The city shall be in the middle. This shall be long to them as common land for the cities. Now, among the cities which you shall give to the Levites, you shall appoint six cities of refuge. And so here you have it, the, uh, the 
tribes of Israel, and presumably it's these men who are appointed in chapter 34 are going to appoint uh, cities for them, and there are going to be uh, 48 cities. Actually, let's just continue reading here. It says in verse 6, Now among the cities which you will give to the Levites, you shall appoint six cities of refuge to which a manslayer may flee, and to these you shall add 42 cities. So all the cities you will give to the Levites shall be 48. These you shall give with their common lands. And, and so the 11 tribes would be given... Uh, would be giving 48 cities uh, to the Levites. Notice how the Lord does spread them throughout the uh, nation of Israel, throughout the land. Uh, they are uh, not all concentrated in Jerusalem where, uh, or the place where the tabernacle was, uh, which was in various places such as Shiloh prior to David, but David, it was moved to Jerusalem. Uh, there were far too many Levites, tens of thousands of them, uh, for to be um, enough uh, work in Jerusalem, although I believe at a later time um, we'll see there was a uh, rotation in which uh, Levites would migrate on a certain month to Jerusalem. But the, the God spreads them out, and this is so they would uh, really be in a, a spiritual influence in the land. It, one, of the, one of my favorite stories is uh, just, uh, I believe, Jehoshaphat, I believe, again, and with Hezekiah, where um, there are uh, Levites throughout the land, and then and then at the time, they, they would go right into uh, the ten tribes of the north after the separation and, and go up there too and, and spread the word of God, uh, spread the gospel as they knew it. And they were to be salt, the salt of the nation, to preserve the godliness of the nation. They were spread out throughout the uh throughout the nation of Israel. And they, uh, a Levitical family was not really given any specific land uh, for themselves. It's a little unclear what happens in the city, but outside of the city, there's common land. So no one could say, hey, this really good green grass, this is my grass. And that, in other words, none of the, no, individual family of the Levites could uh, claim that because they were common lands, um, uh, jo like joint tenants and interest type of thing where the, all of them owned all of it, uh, who resided in that specific city. Now, um, they did have uh, cattle uh, and for herds and, and those did graze, so there was some income uh, generated from that, although I think it's fair to say there's not enough for that to sustain them. They relied relied on the tithes of the people. If the people don't give, if the people are not faithful to give uh, to the Lord, the Levites 
themselves become impoverished. And so what a sad place a, a country is when its pastors uh, and priests become impoverished. And so we will see that in the book of Judges, a very strange 400-year history where uh, at one point, uh, the story of Micah, there's a there's a, uh, a, a, a Levite traveling the country looking for work. Anytime uh, a country is in spiritual decline, the pastors will be, um, uh, and teachers of the Word of God will be unemployed and, and impoverished, which is a terrible tragedy. And so uh, they are given this land. Let's uh, continue on. In verse 8, it says, And the cities which you will give them shall be from the possession of the children of Israel. From the larger tribe you shall give many. From the smaller uh, you shall give few. Each shall give some of its cities to the Levites in proportion to the inheritance that each receives. And so uh, the, the, the tribes which had were smaller um, rather, the tribes that were larger would be giving up more cities. For example, Judah would give up more cities than Benjamin, which was a much smaller tribe. Verse 9, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. They shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. And of the cities which you give, you shall have six cities of refuge. You shall appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan, and three cities you shall appoint in the land of Canaan, which will be cities of refuge refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there. But if he strikes him with an iron implement so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. And if he strikes him with a stone in the hand by which one could die, and he does die, he is a murderer, and the murderer shall surely be put to death. Or if he strikes him with a wooden hand weapon by which one could die and he does die, he is a murderer, and the murderer shall surely be put to death. The avenger of blood himself shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. If he pushes him out of hatred or while lying in wait, hurls something at him so that he dies, or in enmity he strikes him with his hand so that he dies, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. However, if he pushes him suddenly without enmity, or throws anything at him without lying in wait, or uses a stone by which a man could die, throwing it at him without seeing him, so that he dies while he was not his enemy, or seeking his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. So the congregation 
shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled, and he shall remain there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. And so what's going on here, there was not a police force um, at this time. In fact, um, I don't think there was uh, a police force or what is common, what we know of as a police force, what we think of as a police force. I don't think that was until the 19th century in Great Britain. Um, really, uh, in the case of, of, of murder, it was the family of the victim who were responsible for bringing um, someone to to justice. Now, it's important to read these verses uh, alongside of Deuteronomy 17.6, which says, whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So what this does not mean is that is that the family of a victim uh, just hunts someone down and immediately kills them. There there must be uh, some kind of impartial judicial proceeding that takes place. And we'll see that again, actually, later on here in Numbers chapter 35. And so it wasn't the vigilante justice type of thing. No need to be horrified here. I know that um, he, we at Calvary Chapel in the city for years have worked uh, with the uh, gang youth in Boston. And few things are more tragic than the cycle of vid- vigilante justice. It just goes uh, on and on and on and on. Um, and tragically, we had uh, someone in our youth group who uh, got away from the Lord, started repping from a gang. He was murdered uh, uh, over two years ago. And just recently, um, the gang he started repping for uh, committed a murder of those who uh, uh, murdered him. And so this goes on and on and on, and it's a terrible tragedy. Without any kind of just, justice uh, system, It's it's... But here... Uh, must be read in conjunction with Deuteronomy 17.6. And so uh, the avenger of blood referred to uh, in these verses, such as verse uh, 19, uh, another uh, Bible scholars will tell you another uh, term for that is the a kinsman redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, the nearest um, uh, relative to the person, and and usually the person um, who's a male, more of a patriarch, respo- patriarch responsible for um, uh, making sure that justice is done. And so uh, these six cities, they're spread out equally over the land so that no city is uh, more than a day's run from another city. And so uh, if someone mistakenly 
killed someone. I mean, if you're by yourself out in the woods and um, uh, and uh, you are chopping wood or you're hunting or something like that and, and, and through a tragic accident, uh, the, the person that you're with is, uh, is killed, well, there's no, you know, there, you, you, you go back and um, there's nothing to prove that you didn't kill them. But the person would flee um, to one of these refuge cities. It's in very, very important that the reader of the Word of God understands that the sin of violence is an anathema to God. It's, it is uh, really an abomination. Uh, it was the reason for Noah's flood that violence covered the face of the earth. And so God doesn't want a murder uh, to follow an accidental death. Uh, so important is that issue to him that he sets up this system of a city of refuge. Uh, and so the cities of refuge, of course, a very beautiful picture of Jesus. Jesus is a refuge uh, for us, uh, not only for the innocent, but for the guilty, and we read here as well, this is not only for the Jews, but verse uh, 15 says it's also for sojourners. And of course, Jesus um, uh, was not only for Jews, he was for the Gentiles is as well, large sections of the book of Romans are dedicated to that fact. And so, um, a beautiful picture of Jesus. Everyone has access to these cities for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him, not just a portion, uh, not just the good, not just the bad, not just Jew, not just Gentile, whosoever believes in him uh, shall not perish but have everlasting life and they were um, they were were to be well known in other words everyone in Israel was to know uh, their family they grew up knowing that the place of refuge was Jesus Christ or rather was the city of refuge and so uh, parents when you raise your children from a very young age uh, you should be teaching them in fact from the time they're in the mother's womb you should be teaching them that Jesus Christ is a refuge not only for the innocent but for the guilty and so that if they're out and they sin they know they know they can run to a loving Savior. So it says at the end of verse 28 that the person fleeing to the city um, was, um, if the, the congregation, verse 25, meaning the leaders, the elders of the city, uh, judged between the avenger and the person who was being accused that the, the person was innocent, they would stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Now, uh, that is a really interesting one. Now, why would that ever be the case? I, I have to say, I, that has always been a mystery to me. I mean, what should that have, why should that 
come at the death of the high priest. I mean, it could be that uh, the grieving family of the victim just needed some time to grieve and they didn't want to have this this uh, person who they thought was guilty roaming around them for a while. It could be that. Uh, more likely, this really was put there deliberately because it's a prophetical uh, it's a it's a prophetical word that shows that through the death of Jesus Christ who we call is called in the book of Hebrews our high priest that we're free we're free to to go out we are uh, completely uh, free and those wonderful verses of Romans uh, that I quote to uh, anybody who is uh, staying in a place of sin, who thinks that there's no way out. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, we know this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now here's the key, verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. If you have died with Christ, if you have believed that Jesus uh, died for you and rose from the dead and you have gone to him and said, that's it, the old me, take it, Lord. I'm going to die to it and I'm going to live from now on for you. The Bible says you have died with Christ and therefore you have been freed from your sin. Verse 18 of Romans chapter 8 uh, six says, and having been set free from sin, you become a slave of righteousness. And so um, the, it's kind of like the year of Jubilee, just a wonderful picture of freedom uh, that uh, from any kind of debt. And so uh, that's what these uh, cities of refuges represent. So the death of the high priest, uh, until the death of the high priest, the person was required to uh, remain in the city after the death. He was uh, sent back to the city where he grew up in. Verse 29, And these things shall be a statement of judgment to you throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. There you have the reference to Deuteronomy 17. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but she shall surely be put to death. And you shall take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the priest." So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. And so uh, the death penalty, uh, an issue that rages today, whether capital punishment is biblical or not, I myself um refuse to go on the public record um, on that one. I do think there are arguments both ways. I do feel, though, that if you are a proponent of the death penalty, you do have to reckon with the due process issue. That is, what is their fairness um, to the population 
of people who are uh, have been accused of murder. I'm not telling you, really, I'm not which which direction you need to go in there. But um, there are many studies uh, indicating uh, that uh, the impoverished are uh, are not given uh, the same. Um, they don't have the same likelihood of an innocent verdict as someone who is uh, wealthy. Uh, on the other hand, I do know that in the state of Massachusetts, uh, uh, recently I was uh, attended a murder trial and had spoke to the head homicide detective. And there are some states, such as Massachusetts, where uh, folks guilty of, uh, although there's no death penalty in Massachusetts, that they're guilty of, of murder and these types of things, that, that there are a lot of resources available to them. And so I'm not really making a statement about which way you should end up on this, but um, for sure, uh, the, uh, the, the, these statements in the book of Numbers and the book of Genesis about the death penalty um, they were assuming fairness in the process. And so uh, verse 34 says, Therefore do not defile the land which you inhabit in the midst of which I dwell, for I the Lord dwell among the children of Israel. Isn't that interesting that I the Lord dwell among the children of Israel? Look, you don't want your land defiled by murder. More importantly, I don't want my land defiled by murder. I dwell here. And so, uh, near and dear to the heart uh, of the Lord is this whole issue of murder. Chapter 36, now the chief, uh, verse 1, now the chief fathers of the families of the children of, uh, of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Matt Manasseh, the families of the sons of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the leaders, the chief fathers of the children of Israel. And they said, The Lord commanded my Lord Moses to give the land as an inheritance by law to the children of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of our brothers Zelophehad to his daughters. Now, if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the children of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers, and it will be added to the inheritance of the tribes into which they marry. So it will be taken from the lot of our inheritance. And when the jubilee of the children of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So their inheritance will be taken away from the inheritance of the tribes of their fathers. Then Moses commanded the children of Israel, according to the word of the Lord, saying, What the tribe of the sons of Joseph speaks is right. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, Let them marry whom they think best, but they may marry only within the family of their father's tribe. So the inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be the wife of one who the family of her father's tribe, so that the children of Israel each may possess the inheritance of the, his fathers. Thus, no inheritance shall change hand from one tribe to another, but every tribe of the children of Israel shall keep its own inheritance. 
just as the Lord commanded Moses. So did the daughters of Zelophehad. For Malatur, Zahogla, Milcah, Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to the sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the family of the children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of the father's family. These are the commandments and the judgments which the Lord commanded the children of Israel by the hand of Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. And so, uh, quickly, chapter 36, um, what this does, it's sort of a, a you know, a closes, I, I suppose you could call a legal loophole. Recall earlier that the daughters of Zelophehad came and said, look, uh, we don't have a brother. And so if our, you know, our father dies, then his name is going to be blotted out in Israel. And so Moses took that to the Lord and he said, you're right, you marry and it'll become the, the possession. It'll stay in your family. Uh, and so the point being made here uh, by others in the tribe of Joseph is that, wait a second, if, the, if in this situation the daughters of uh, Zelophehad marry outside the tribe, then what the borders are in Numbers chapter 34 will be changed because the land will pass to the man in that tribe, as was the common then, it passed uh, to the men. Uh, and so the uh, solution here was that in this uh, situation where there was uh, no male heir uh, to the, uh, you know, in, in a family where there was only daughters, the daughter had to marry within the tribe and therefore protecting the borders um, that would be meted out uh, in Numbers 34 and then later in, uh, in, in Joshua. I guess this specific borders are not mentioned in Numbers uh, 34. They're going to come up later. But there would be no uh, change of borders as a result of uh, this this limited situation. I mean, you can imagine the craziness. We're right in the middle of the tribe of Judah. Uh, one of the daughters happened to, uh, a daughter of, I don't know, uh, Manasseh happens to marry a man from Judah. So right uh, right in, uh, rather, uh, a daughter of Judah marries uh, someone, a man from uh, uh, Manasseh, then you have right in the middle of Judah, you'd have this little area of land that was from the tribe of Manasseh. No, there'll be none of that, says the Lord. The Once the uh, borders are, are meted out, once they are uh, scoped out and divided, they will be like that forever. So uh, there you have it, the book of Numbers. Next time we will be starting in the book of Deuteronomy. God bless you.